0: welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Lloyd Gutteridge, who's senior lecturer at Auckland University of Technology in business and Lloyd works particularly with degree transition students coming into the business school. And he's spent over 30 years working as a secondary school teacher in the UK, Singapore, and here in New Zealand where he's taught at four different schools in Auckland. And I believe, Lloyd, you've been involved in a writing project to develop a business management course. And you say with knowledge at the core. Can you explain what you mean by, have I would have thought any education program should have knowledge at the core?
1: Yes, Mike, and thank you for having me on today. The program that I've been working on is really a what we call an international baccalaureate subject program. So it is a business course designed for 16 to 18-year-olds, and it would run in a similar vein to, say, a Cambridge syllabus of uh, business business studies and obviously we have an nca program that's built around uh, levels one two and three here but the ib program is a effectively a conceptual program so the course has four main concepts of creativity ethics sustainability and change but then we have a business syllabus of content that relates to human resources marketing operations and finance, and for the first time, information systems. So I've been working on developing a core program of looking at things like Internet of Things, artificial intelligence and you can imagine that's quite tricky because since we finished writing the course in 2021 there's been quite a few changes since then but there's kind of like an agreed body of knowledge in the course much of it comes from university programs and when I first started teaching business in the UK in 1990 we actually borrowed a lot of our material both quantitative material and qualitative material from the university degree programs. So if I looked at a business course in 1990, it would look very different to what we currently have in the IB program and would look very, very different to what we have in, say, for example, the NCA program, which is business studies.
0: And, that, and that's because of the ad- advance of technology primarily or...?
1: Yeah. I mean, in terms of information systems, what we've we've seen, of course, is the, the massive change in the use of data yes. and how data now drives decision making in a way that we probably didn't imagine when I first started teaching. We are now using information systems to make decisions about marketing ideas, operations, how we, you know, where we produce, how we produce. So the basic fundamentals of business haven't changed. It's just that the tools that we have now to use... And to help us make better decisions, have now grown and obviously data, data analysis, big data, artificial intelligence have clearly changed how we look at that information and how we use that information. Absolutely. So we, it, it was a it was a pretty ambitious project, and I, I won't say that we got it completely right. We wrote the syllabus before the incident of ChatGPT, for example.
0: Yes, big but, game changer, isn't it?
1: Very much so. Yeah, and I'm actually going to be working on a project in with the IB on a on a paper called Digital Society. And again, this is one of those movable feasts where we, we're not quite sure what knowledge we should include in the programme because, A, the knowledge is changing and, B, it's very contestable sometimes as well as to what real, is real knowledge and what is jargon and buzzwords. So, yeah, it's been a great challenge. It's a four-year project and I'm very pleased now we're, we're able to, to move on from that. But I do think that business studies has always had an issue in relation to, say, economics, in that so much of our content is contestable. It, 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 a lot of it's industry driven. What, what do you mean by marketing segmentation? You know, there, there are terms that are very much up for grabs. And of course, this has meant that students who are on the end of learning about business need to make sure that they really do have a good grasp and understanding of the funda- fundamentals of the subject. Before they can run a business, they need to be able to really identify what are the key content that they need to, to, to study so that they can understand cash flow, that they can understand marketing, that they can understand operations. And one of the challenges of being a business studies teacher in NCA land in New Zealand over the last 12 years has been, what do I actually teach? Because the the, the, the learning outcomes are quite broad. There is content linked, linked to standards but again, some of that content is sometimes quite challenging for new teachers. And would you especially. say that
0: there's a, a kind of lack of curriculum guidance and direction? Is that is that one I, of the issues?
1: Well, I I would say that I mean I'm an economics teacher and I picked up business studies through market need because students were doing business and they wanted to study business. So there isn't a kind of assumption that economics and accounting teachers make great business studies teachers. I don't think that's the case, actually. I think that anybody who's got the core knowledge of, of business can teach business. So when in 2010 we started looking at these achievement standards, it was quite clear that there was a need for a guidance as to what to teach, possibly even how to teach, New Zealand's had an, a, a very strong history of experiential learning, which I think is great, actually, really useful. But they also need the knowledge in order to be able to achieve uh, good experiential learning. Hent, um, hence your right
0: that this course should have knowledge at the core. Abso-
1: absolutely. I mean, knowledge precedes skill. I think that's been well said by the, the sort of the lobby group that's representing a return back to core knowledge as being important. But um, I, I've seen it happen and I've been guilty of it myself as a teacher as I've assumed skill before knowledge, especially when it comes to business activities. And I think that that's actually the wrong way around. And we've kind of in the race to get kids involved and be active and be engaged. We've sometimes forgotten that cognitively that may not actually be very useful for them because they need to have that base knowledge in order to understand what they're doing Absolutely. when it comes to these, these activities. So that, that's been an ongoing challenge for myself and probably lots of teachers. And I keep up to date with forums and I look at comments on Facebook pages and I, I can see that some teachers are really struggling with understanding what to teach. For example, if I give you an example from level three, market strategy, that's an incredibly broad topic. There are some brushstrokes, there are some key pointers that you need to cover, like a SWOT analysis or marketing activities or the four Ps. But that that it's it still needs a much greater detail and drive down if if you like into the gr- nitty-gritty which I think the Cambridge syllabus provides and and the ib does as well but the NCA it doesn't in a sense it, it, it's 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 more driven around what's required for the standard
0: yes well of course and, the the standards are supposed to be derived from the New Zealand curriculum but if you look at the New Zealand curriculum it's pretty threadbare you you don't see a lot there so I think it's a, a major problem with the NCA in general, not just in business, but every subject that it's not underpinned by enough of a solid curriculum. And so the standards become the de facto curriculum. And and that doesn't necessarily have good effects on students learning because connections between different standards tend not to be made and everything's a bit broken up and fragmented.
1: I mean, that's an excellent point, Michael. I mean, if you look at economics, for example, which I also teach, there are some students that can, through the NCA programme, avoid teach subjects like they can avoid theory of the firm, they can avoid some theoretical knowledge if their teacher doesn't teach that particular standard. Yeah. And, and, and obviously I, I completely get it because I've been there, I've been in schools with, with results and, you know, getting, getting numbers and getting kids credits because we know the credits gives confidence. But from a holistic point of view, I've often asked myself the question, are my students really learning an integrated approach to economics? particularly if they then want to go on to university and take it further, they might go there without say, knowledge of the multiplier or the accelerator because their teacher hasn't taught them that particular standard. And whilst I I understand that from a teaching perspective, from a learning perspective, and I separate the two yep. here, I think that that's, that's not preparing our, our students for what they need if they want them to carry on with their knowledge at a higher level.
0: I, I know because- that it's also an issue in science and mathematics when... Students land at university and they might have done some of the standards, but they haven't got calculus, which is absolutely vital to university mathematics, and then they have to do catch up courses and so on. So I do think that's a massive issue with NCA, especially in the, the more numerate disciplines like economics, yeah. science, mathematics.
1: I mean, I, th- I think I must, in a sense, sort of caution my remarks, the fact that I am I'm an economics teacher and I and I don't speak for other subjects, but... I am now teaching students who've come in with prior knowledge in business and economics. And it's it's quite clear that some of them have missed a a certain level of knowledge that they need in order to cope. I mean, to give you just one example, there's a a standard in level three business called 3.5. It's analyzing a human resource issue. I think it's a really good standard, actually it's really good. The students like it. But if the the kids haven't been taught that, they then have to learn a lot about motivation theory. They then have to come in with understanding of leadership, recruitment. And in a way, yes, they can learn that when they're at university. But as we know, prior knowledge is such a big driver in student success once they get into us.
0: Yeah, that's Um, right.
1: And, I mean, the Cambridge courses and the IB courses assume no prior knowledge. But we know that there are kids that are doing IGCC business for two years. They may have internal business programs. So any knowledge that you can create for your students at the age of 14, 15, 16 is going to be so invaluable when they then decide to take those more advanced courses.
0: Yeah. So we're we're talking here really about the content of courses and the breadth of knowledge and gaps in students' knowledge as a result of not perhaps covering certain NCA standards. But I'd like now to turn to how students learn and that's where the science of learning comes in, which I believe is something you've become very interested in. So, can you tell us a bit about how that how you got involved in yeah. science of learning and what what you've discovered?
1: Well, I I must go back and compliment some of my former colleagues. I mean, I, I worked in a school and where we were encouraged to do a professional inquiry. So we we were looking at under underachievement in our students, and we were asked look at a few students and see whether we could make a difference and we could adapt our teaching styles or and and this was the 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 thing that got me into research and I I suddenly realized that even having been a qualified teacher the current thinking around what works in terms of learning hadn't prepared me when I was doing my teaching course I I did a lot of work around Gestalt and Piaget and I, I suddenly realized that the common thinking around where best evidence-informed research is going is is not that. I know that there are people that are very keen to talk about inquiry learning and constructivism, I get that, but I was tasked with the chance or the opportunity to say, how can I help my students learn more? Because obviously, if they can learn more, they can can be more confident and they can be hopefully more successful in in their subjects. So I started doing research around things that the school recommended. I started Lightly with people like uh, John Hattie and some other researchers, mostly based in New Zealand, Michael Fullan's name, I know he's not a New Zealander, but we, we were given opportunities to look at research. But then, and this goes back slightly, Michael, so just excuse me, but as I as I've, may have mentioned, I do have a son with special needs, and I realised that when I was being trained in workshops to how to be a parent with, as, with a child with special needs, I suddenly realised that when we start looking at how the brain learns, of which my son does have deficits, I thought that the processes that we use to train students who are neurodiverse can actually be used to train and help students that are neurotypical. Yeah, And so I began this journey by literally picking up a book, uh, Paul Kirshner's Myths in Education, Daisy Kristaludu's Seven Myths of Education, because I, I really wanted to challenge myself. I didn't think that cognitive science would necessarily give me the answers, but the more I read and the more I found out that I had been wrong, and that I needed to change my approach. And then of course, really what, what did it for me was people like John Sweller, Greg yeah. Ashman, talking about cognitive load theory. And suddenly right. all these all these light bulbs were going off and thinking, oh my God, what have I done? You know, Yeah, um, so we,
0: we should probably explain to listeners a bit about what cognitive load theory is. And it probably starts with the theory of working memory. So would you like to talk a bit about working memory and your understanding of what that is? Yeah, so I'm
1: sort of going to sort of paraphrase probably very badly Daniel Willingham's work, Daniel C. Williams again, a book which every educator should read, which is Daniel Willingham's book, Why Don't Kids Like School? So my understanding of, of the sort of idea of cognitive load theory is that working memory can only really hold about four items, if four, you like.
0: Four to seven, probably, depending yeah. depending on the individual. In- You know, working memory is this short term memory system that we use to execute tasks that are immediate. So you can think of it in a way as the contents of your consciousness at any particular time. And as you say, it's got a pretty limited capacity and it will decay quickly unless we keep rehearsing what's in it, right? So... Very much
1: so. A very crude metaphor that I've used, and I apologize if this is totally off base, but I kind of see working memory in a sense like RAM on a computer that's used to design, to run programs. And obviously that's limited. And and that's why your computer sometimes crashes, because you're trying to make it work too hard in RAM. What you want to be able to do is then transfer those programs to your long-term memory, which, of course, the metaphor there is the the hard disk, a sense, which is going to be more permanent and you can use it and recall it fairly quickly. So
0: and it's got I, essentially an infinite capacity. Long-term memory doesn't get full. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hard disk, obviously, even with the terabytes that we get now is still, still limited. But yeah, so I mean if you look at a typical kid in a in a lesson, as a teacher, you're probably going to give out certain messages at the beginning of a lesson. You might use learning intentions. And what I found is increasingly that I was probably talking too much and I was giving out too much information in a sense because I wasn't allowing working memory to really process what I was saying. So that that um, means
0: that the, the students would have their working memory overloaded. And I guess when that happens, they can get confused or disengaged. And perhaps if it happens for a long time, they'll lose motivation and get frustrated. Yep. Yeah.
1: The other compelling factor is, is, of course, that that working memory is also being filled up with other bits of information that they're receiving, some of it non-verbal, and, of course, the the one of the sort of gorilla in the room is, is the social media and the phone. So if you're working in a school where kids are a- access to smartphones, their working memory is also being used up by notifications, yeah, dopamine but... effects, from getting a social media like or something, and that's occupying their
0: working they're memory. They're dividing their attention between whatever is going on in it the class doesn't... and their phone, right. and, of course, that is very detrimental to learning and and they will get cognitive overload.
1: I mean, the thing, I mean, it's, it, again, this is sort of me paraphrasing what some of the research is indi- indicating, but I'm, you know, as a teacher, I want my students to be enthused and engaged. And I think there's been a rise of what I would call edutainment. Some of it's been built around technology, but actually it's really hopeless for, for working memory. As I think Daniel Willingham said, you've got to write your lessons. You've got to think about your lessons. You've got to treat learning in a way so that what do you want your students to think about in a lesson what do you want what because as we as we know he's come up with this great pithy phrase of memory is the residue of thought so if you're getting your kids to think about what that you want to cover in the lesson by clearly defined and short learning intentions then cognitively you're doing absolutely the right thing to help your kids learn yeah but distractors youtubes again i've been i've I've been guilty and I I apologize to some of my students in the past for this in this in the sense to be engaging I probably have overloaded working memory, and there will be some students who probably are going what am I supposed to do, you know, and I've tried to write it on the board and I've tried to sequence and I've scaffolded but. This working limit working memory limitation has been a complete revelation to me
0: yeah.
1: because kids have also got other things that are going on in their life you know I'm my lessons important but it's not the most important thing to them at that moment. That's an um, excellent
0: point so even if it's not their phone, it can be thinking about what's going on at home or some trouble absolutely. with their friends or wh- whatever absolutely. it is yeah
1: and if you if you add in a bad morning a journey, a bad um, you know maybe traffic at the moment we've got bus cancellations in Auckland. The, the overload, if you like, of, of working memory is complete. I mean, yeah. my, with my own son, my 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 son, Joel, who is uh, a string of, of conditions, ADHD, ASD, o- ODD, we can't overload his memory because he gets incredibly panicked. Students who are on the spectrum get incredibly overwhelmed and get really tense if you overload them. Yeah, And, and I've seen that as a parent, and I've probably... In, in maybe in a less dramatic way, I've seen that in my students as well. So, well, I
0: think, I, I mean, you're quite right that w- what is the case for neurodiverse people is, to a lesser degree, the case for us all. It's not that, you know, that, that your, your son gets panicked and he's alone yeah. in that. In fact, anybody will start to get anxious and tense if they're trying to learn something and they get confused because of cognitive overload.
1: Well, I mean, that's such a great point. And I, and I think that, you know, we... In lessons, we we try to throw out strategies like differentiation, personalized learning, self-directed learning. We've, we've tried to incorporate an inclusive approach to teaching. I think every teacher wants that. And I do that. And I want that for my students, whether they're neurodiverse or whether they're neurotypical. And a great revelation to me has been the fact that if I can structure my lessons to support neuro typical learners I'm also doing a massive favour for neurodiverse learners and the other way around absolutely right
0: and I mean it's frustrating to me that for example the condition of dyslexia you know some people say well you know this science of learning stuff this structured literacy doesn't work for dyslexic kids they need something else but of course that's exactly wrong they need it more than anyone
1: yeah, I, again, the, the, I've been looking for more and more research. I've, I've got some from the UK, which seems to be one of the first countries that's really taken on board the science of learning. And I and I noted the new materials that they've produced around teacher training, which makes a specific reference to cognitive approaches to learning, using people like Rosenstein's principles, which, again, I, did, I was not aware of when I trained and I've only become aware of in, four, in the last four or five years you know, work like Daniel Willingham's work where the focus is on developing develop a teaching approach which recognises the limitations of, of working memory yeah. and also acknowledges that, the, you know, if you want learning, and we've, we're really focusing, Michael, on learning here rather than performance and assessment. We haven't mentioned the dreaded credits yet, which is great, yeah. but if we're focusing on learning, we've got to acknowledge the cognitive architecture of the brain and how the brain learns.
0: That's absolutely uh, right. So let, let's talk a little bit about how we deal with the fact that working memory does get overloaded. You you said before, quite rightly, that the goal is to transfer information from working memory to long-term memory, where it's no longer subject to the capacity limitations and you don't have to attend to it all the time to keep it there. But how do we do that? Uh, What advice would you give to teachers about how to approach that?
1: Well, I mean, it's... Again, I've, I've sort of, you may not be able to see this, but my re- my face is going slightly red because of the, some of the things that I've done in the past probably haven't helped the transfer of knowledge from working memory to, to short-term memory. To so I, memory. Yeah. again, another very profound phrase is practice makes permanent. Whereas again, this is an, another classic way. And I know students don't necessarily like practice. And I just want to add in the fact that because many schools don't have external examinations, kids are not... Developing what I would call good strategies about learning material, because they don't have to in an internal assessment; they 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 need to for an external assessment because obviously there's no notes or anything. You're talking
0: about what we might think of as swatting for exams, memorising material.
1: So, I mean, if I go back and, and think of sort of what what are perceived as being traditional methods of teaching, like practice, retrieval practice, interleaving, spaced repetition. I mean, these were things that probably when I first started teaching was seen as being very much the old way and of course then was subsequently replaced by more constructivist approaches like inquiry-based learning and, and things but what what's the compelling factor for me is whether I choose to accept either of those things and I, I don't think there is a definitive way but I've got to focus on what the brain likes and how the brain learns and Willingham's book in particular was really rev- revelatory to me in a sense that it kind of said that the brain doesn't like to think you've got to help it so things like chunking information for example yeah creating schemas in the way that you teach so that kids get a body of knowledge and they understand it and then they can add it to another body of knowledge so a schema so that, is like, when
0: as when different parts of a knowledge structure connect to one another right so absolutely they, they and can, this, yeah You go ahead. and this
1: is like in business in particular and economics you know, in economics, you need an understanding of demand and supply in order to help you understand the theory of the firm. And in, in business, you need an understanding of, of, of finance and, and operations so that you can do marketing. They're all interleaved. They're all interlinked. But we've tended to, to treat them as very discrete parts of knowledge. Well, they're not in the real world, so why should they be in the classroom? So yeah. I've I've tried in my own way, and again, working with transition students with a lot, with a range of different schools. I hate the, the term decile, but if you, if you think, a range of different backgrounds, I found that I've had to go back to what I felt was the important way to help them learn how to do university study. So I've given lots of examples. I've, I've scaffolded tasks. I have provided exemplars where I've worked through the example. So a worked example, and then I let them do one. And then I do another one. And this is not some progressiveness. uh, Sorry, this is not some traditional drill and kill because I hear that a lot on the chats that people think that this is boring and that, it, it, it's not boring. You can make it interesting and you can make it fun and you can use metaphors and you can do everything that you want to do as a teacher. But well, you could still gamify
0: very... it as long as they're doing enough yeah. repetition, right? It's about and, about doing it enough that it gets transferred yeah. to the long-term memory.
1: And I think, I mean, again, I'm sort of throwing names out here, Michael, but Barbara Oakley's work has just been phenomenal. I mean... We, we
0: like Barbara I, Oakley. She's going to visit us in a couple of years, so we're looking oh, forward to oh, that.
1: Please, please reserve me a front row seat because... The, the, this is a fantastic lady who works brilliantly in, and explains. And I've done her course. It's the most popular MOOC course in, in the world on the internet. It's a free course. It's called Learning How to Learn. It's run by Coursera. Again, any teacher who wants to learn about cognitive load theory or anything about the, the illusion of knowledge. I love her, all the stuff that she does. She uses metaphors. She uses examples. And it's it's. I've just learned so much from she, her. She's a
0: brilliant and, educator, isn't she?
1: Yeah. yeah, and and by her own admission, not a scientist. You know, she learned how to do science having been in the army and being in Antarctica. And the way the way that they've done it is just brilliant. There's no, it's not a coincidence to me that her course is one of the most popular online courses in the world. So, yeah. I think all of these all of these strategies, and I think I would reach out to all teachers. I I wouldn't try and approach everything at once. What I would really strongly suggest you do is just maybe look at some of the current work that's been going on around cognitive load theory and start there, and start small and then, like you would if you were trying to teach this to your students, just build upon your knowledge. So once you've kind of understood the idea of limitations of working memory, then you can move on to some of the strategies that we can use yeah. to move material from working memory into long-term I memory. think
0: I think you're right there, Lloyd. I mean, to me, the working memory and cognitive load theory is something that every teacher should have in their training because – it underpins all learning right so it's bizarre to me that yeah. we don't have it front and center in in our teacher training
1: i think it's very revealing michael that i mean i trained a long time ago now i trained on the job as it were in 94 96 when piaget and constructivism was at its height but i would strongly recommend i mean this is not something where where, where we are in a sense a cult and i'm trying to sell something here i'm not i'm really doing it the, the benefit of to try and help students get better. Yes. And we're spending a lot of money in New Zealand on strategies to try and help students get better. And I think if we went back to the idea of looking at how the brain learns, we're going to help more students than we probably might expect at a lesser cost because we all we are looking at is an adjustment in the way that we treat working memory and obviously long-term memory and cognitive load. And I think the challenge for people like myself is not to try and win over people with the argument, because I think that they have to make up their own mind. But it's to provide them with a an example and a, a kind of a plan of some way in which they can learn for themselves how to use these techniques.
0: Yeah, and look, um, it's really clear to me that you're you're not trying to sell something because the research evidence is very clear on the benefits of managing work, working memory load and and the necessity to transfer information to long-term memory through practice as you say
1: i i mean i i want to be you know the best teacher i can i sorry that sounds a bit kind of naive but i've i'm still a teacher after 30 odd years because i still feel this job is so fascinating and hard in equal measure and i want to learn how i can be better and not going up being promoted in a sense but by doing the research and preparing myself I find it compelling that the UK after many many years of being grounded in the idea of inquiry learning has now moved and shifted to the idea of using cognitive science Indeed. so I you know, their teacher training program and some of the materials and of course what's happening is I'm seeing names that I've been reading about and in their bibliographies they're using those same references like KirshnerKrista Ludu and I mean you know there when you pick up a book it says from David from David uh, Dida, what if everything you knew about education was wrong? Of course, you're going to pick that up because you're saying, well, I've been teaching for 30 years. I know better than that. And you look at it and go, actually, I may have been doing it wrong. And I feel sorry about that. And maybe here's a way I can improve. So
0: yeah,
1: you know, it's been a bit of a, dis- a discovery path for me and I feel better for it. But I also think my students are learning more. And I think that ultimately that's the reason why. I'm that, that,
0: that, that's why educators are there. Right. And, So look, thank you very much for your time today, Lloyd. And it's inspiring to hear an educator going on a path of discovery like this. And if only we had this available to all teachers when they're trained, I think you're right. We'd be serving our students very much better. So thanks again, Lloyd.
1: No, you're very welcome, Michael. It's been a pleasure and thank you for having me on today.